Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, June 5th, 2021. Right now, once again, it is Wednesday morning, and we have our friend Truthvids here with us to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 39 of our series. Having completed our discussion of the corrupted priesthood, and our interpretation of the words of the prophet Malachi in that regard, which in turn illuminate the reasons for the divisions between Christ and his adversaries as they are described in John chapter 8. It is now appropriate to discuss the bigger picture of Jacob and Esau in prophecy. These things certainly are related as that is how even Malachi had begun his discussion of the corrupted priesthood with a portrayal of the mistaken concern which Jacob would have for Esau. In Malachi's words, that is the basis for his condemnation of the priesthood. However, the relationship between Jacob and Esau goes far beyond the priesthood. And biblical prophecy helps to explain the very circumstances under which we live today. As world Jewry is the center of global politics and international attention. As Christians, especially those in America, support Jewry without question, going so far as to worship Jews more than they worship Jesus. So, that concern which Malachi portrayed is prophetic, and that also fits into the proper explanation of those same circumstances. Hello, Truthfids. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for being here. Hello, Bill. Praise Yahweh. Thanks for having me. Yes, yeah, so, so now we can really get into uh, the, the relationship and who Esau is, who the Jews are, right? Because most people... They ponder that question, that they know there's something wrong, that, that they have a sinister nature, but they can never quite work out who they are. And they, they just go through their whole life never knowing. And, and these proofs can really elaborate and, and explain it, that people get trapped uh, when they search for the truth in these silly conspiracies, like that they are, they are these Khazars, for example, you know, that they converted to Judaism, that it's just a religion, nothing more, or that they're... Uh, evil lizard men or evil Babylonian Israelites who returned but were corrupted permanently, or that they're Jephethites pretending to be Israelites. You, you know, there's there's so much. And uh, if you understand these prophecies, you understand perfectly clear that their origin, who they are, how they came about, how they got interwoven with the uh, Israelite religion, I guess I could call it a, a corrupted one, Judaism, and everything's explained and, and why we're now in Jacob's trouble, right? I believe that's in Jeremiah, the prophecy, and we're living it out right now, right, Bill? Absolutely. And, and we're in the time of Jacob's trouble right now. I, I have no doubt the, the, the prophecies of, of the yoke and Esau ultimately having dominion at some point. And when we look at the circumstances in the world today, once we've understood, and, and we've explained this in, in many of our proofs here these past, I don't know how many weeks, that these past several presentations, that these 
modern Jews are indeed the Edomites of the Old Testament, and Josephus attests to that, and Paul of Tarsus, and Christ himself in the Revelation, and Strabo, the Greek geographer, who, who had no interest in the politics of Judea when he wrote those words. It, it's, this puts it all together. This, that this narrative of Jacob and Esau in prophecy explains it all. And the reasons for that history become apparent because this was all foreseen by God. Yeah, and, and who's doing well today but wasn't, you know, uh, uh, a, a thousand years ago or centuries, and, and who's who was doing really well a few centuries ago, but now, you know, we're being is very clear that white societies are declining and world Jewry is booming, that, that Esau is in a great place right now, right? The, the evil descendants of Cain. Well, well, right. 250 years ago, Britain was at the height of its empire. The, the Germans had an empire, and they were immediately, because of the, the, the treachery of the House of Rothschild and the Jewish bankers, they were immediately pitted one against the other, and, and ultimately Britain prevailed and Germany was destroyed. But for Britain, it, it was a... a um, I forget the words that the ancient Greeks had, but it was a very costly, that they had a term for it, but it was a very, very costly victory because Britain Fair lost victory. her empire. And, and world Jewry has come to, through these international banks, ha, has come to dominate the entire world. So, so, right, 250 years ago, white European Christian civilization, what was at its epitome, and, and it's been on a decline ever since. And, and there are underlying reasons for that. You meant, Bill. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I've lost you. Was it a ferric victory, the term you meant, where you, you win, but you kind of lose as well, or you lose all your army? Or Yes, that, that's the term I'm looking for, I believe. Before we begin, I need to explain an error which I made in our last presentation in Part 39. I don't think it's a huge important error, but I was paraphrasing Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 21 from memory, but I confused it with a similar prophecy in Isaiah, which described Israel as a pleasant plant. Yet the phrase in Jeremiah is a little different, although it has the same general meaning, where Yahweh is portrayed as asking, yet I had planted thee a noble vine, noble vine rather than a pleasant plant. Holy a right seed, how then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? In that same place, the answer is provided where the children of Israel are described as having hewed out for themselves broken cisterns, which can hold no water, and having a sin which cannot be washed. In the overall context, it is revealed that the sin is that of race-mixing fornication. So I just wanted to clarify that in, in case some of, my, some of our more astute listeners notice the mistake or, or go looking for the passage and can't find it in Jeremiah where I said it would be. It's there, but it's strange vine rather than, or, or noble vine rather than pleasant plant. And strange vine rather than strange plant or, or strange shoots 
And that's so it, happening to every white country today, right? A, a beautiful trees uh, kind of rotting and decaying and being turning it black and brown, basically. Absolutely, and, and it's it is horrible. It it is the result of sin, and and sin itself. It it's race mixing is destructive. It's always been destructive. Look at Egypt. Egypt was the greatest civilization of its time. And for the last three thousand years, it's been a it's been a a hellhole, or as Donald Trump described it once, a shithole country, which is exactly what it is. And if it weren't for Western investment, Western engineering, it it would be stuck in a stone age today. So with this, we're going to proceed to. Proof number 52 in our list, which is Jacob and Esau in prophecy. To understand Jacob and Esau in prophecy, we must go back to the beginning, to the call of Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac. Abraham had other sons. He had several other sons, not only Ishmael. He had sons later on. But Yahweh insisted that only a son through Sarah would be his heir and illustrated the importance of that insistence when Sarah had a son at age 90, contrary to all expectation. The promise to Sarah and a later promise to Rebekah, the wife of Isaac, are an important aspect in the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, if one is to understand the roles of Jacob and Esau in history. Paul of Tarsus illustrated that, he illustrated the importance of the promises to Sarah and Rebekah as he had made notice of those promises where he compared Jacob and Esau in Romans chapter 9, and we'll have more on that later. So Isaac was born, and Abraham believed that the promises of Yahweh would be fulfilled through him, as Yahweh God had stated. But then something happened which is described as Yahweh's having tested Abraham. However, there is more to the test than what is apparent in Scripture. Abraham was told to sacrifice his son Isaac, and he obeyed, and human sacrifice was rather common in those days. Abraham obeyed ostensibly because he was confident that Yahweh would somehow keep his promises in spite of the fate of Isaac. So Paul later wrote that because Abraham trusted God, therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness in Romans chapter 4. Now, Portions of this presentation relating to Malachi chapter 1, which we're going to move on to later, were condensed from a January 2017 commentary, which I had done, which was titled The Prophet of Christian Zionism. And it's fitting here to reuse those portions. I did my best to condense them before we could present them here. So we're not going to sell anything short, but we're going to begin with the Genesis account, and then we're going to move on to Malachi chapter 1, which is crucial to understanding all of this, and it, it helps to put everything in perspective, I believe. 
because Yahweh hated Esau, as it states in Malachi chapter 1, we have to go back into Genesis and also where Esau is mentioned in the New Testament in order to figure out why Yahweh hated Esau. I don't know if you have anything to, to, to answer to that. Yeah, yeah, and this this shows how um, Jews have it all right, where they they only care about their own race, right, and, and each other, and that they even celebrate evil Jews from decades ago who, um, uh, you know, basically robbed white nations, corrupted us, and um, ma made the Jews very comfortable. They will, um, you know, bring them up and, and teach them like uh, rabbis' speeches and all that, and we do the opposite. Like if if a uh, so, so say, for example, uh, in America, if a white general conquered a land and gave uh, loads of Americans uh, society, but pushed a few Indians, you know, out the way, then, then he's seen as a bad guy now that we, we um, are trapped in all this c compassion for other people, m mostly by Jews manipulating us. And, and especially, as you said, um, we're mostly concerned with Jews now, right? Absolutely. It, it's like all the center of world attention are, are these damn Jews. And what we see as Jewish criminals are often heroes in the eyes of the Jews themselves. A, a good example is um, Jonathan Pollard, who was convicted of spying, espionage against the United States, did a lot of time in prison. He's a hero in the eyes of most Jews. There are many other examples. When um when international when Jews who, who are international criminals flee to Israel, they're given safe harbor. And and they're comforted. And 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 it's almost impossible to for other countries to attain extradition to get those Jews back and prosecute them. And and that's all in, in the Talmud. That Jews wouldn't be subject to Gentile courts that or Gentile laws. It, it's all there in the Talmud, and they practice it. They actually do. They protect one another, and and in 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 the interest of Jews, no matter how big a criminal or or big a sexual pervert they are. That there are a lot of um. And, and I read an article on this recently. There are a lot of Jewish sex offenders from the United States who have fled to Israel to avoid prosecution and are successfully avoiding prosecution because they're staying in, the, in Palestine, in the Israeli state. We could probably talk about that for a while, but it would be an unnecessary digression. In the ancient world, going back to the sacrifice of Isaac, <clears throat> in the ancient world, a father had property rights and the power to make life and death commitments over his offspring. And the offspring had no say in the matter. So, for example, Abraham had an inherent right to place his son Isaac on the altar and sacrifice him to the will of his God. But what is not apparent in scripture is discovered in ancient literature. In the ancient pagan world, the world from which Abraham was called out, when a man presented something or someone to a god at an altar dedicated to that god,
the object became the person, that the object or person became the property of the God. The care or treatment of the object or person was removed from the hands of its former owner and fell to the priests of the temple or altar where the object or person was dedicated. People, even children, were often dedicated to the temples of the gods by men, and the children would become servants of the temple for better or worse. Some of them would become servants in a good way to, to a temple. Others would become child prostitutes making money for the temple, which happened very often in the ancient world. Many temples were famous for their prostitution for their prostitution and their prostitutes. The first one that comes to mind is the Temple of Artemis, known as the Temple of Diana in the King James Version, that which was at Corinth. The Temple of Artemis was a famous temple, and, and men traveled from abroad in, in order to enjoy prostitutes at that temple. So it was a father's right to take a child and, and dedicate him at a temple, and the child became the property of the god of the temple, and, and control of the child was turned over to the priests. That is also the truth of the event where Jephthah had sacrificed his daughter. He didn't kill her, but he dedicated her to his God. So she lamented her virginity because she would be expected to remain a virgin under those circumstances. She would never be married. So when Isaac was placed on the um, altar Bill, by Abraham... With, um... I'm sorry. I was just going to say, in, um, over the past few centuries, modern churches, you could um, also give give children over to the churches, right? If, if for example, an orphan or, you know, something horrible happened, like your, your daughter was raped and you didn't want to raise the child, you could hand it over to the church and they would raise him or her and, and, and they could serve the people, right? So it, so it could be used as a good thing as well, just as you said, but also in modern times. Right. Well, I didn't really know that went on in modern times. I don't pay much attention to what today's churches do. <laughs> and it's I, I gather, <clears throat> I, I gather churches have adoption services of their own. I don't know how they deal with the state with that because the state agencies are pretty much in control of that now. But I'm sure that the state agencies probably license churches for that purpose or permit them to serve that purpose. Yeah, going yeah, back to downhill now. Going back to Genesis. When Isaac was placed on the altar by Abraham, Abraham had forfeited his parental right over Isaac to the ownership of Yahweh his God. From that point forward, Isaac would be considered the property of God, not by Abraham's choice, but by Yahweh's command. Of all men in history, only Isaac and his descendants can claim to be the personal property of God by the demand of God. Only the descendants of Isaac properly belong to God. That includes Jacob and his descendants, and it also includes Esau and his descendants. 
From the time that they developed into nations of their own, they have been the central focus of all world history, all other Adamic nations ultimately being marginalized or subsumed by them or by the other non-Adamic nations being overrun by the hordes of aliens. So once again, where he compared Jacob and Esau and cited the passage in Malachi where Yahweh attested to hating Esau, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 9, according to our own translation, and speaking of Esau, and he said, Therefore, you will say to me, yet why does he find fault? Indeed, who has resisted his purpose? But rather, O man, and Paul is speaking this concerning Esau, and any contentions that may arise from the fact that Yahweh stated that he hates Esau. And Paul answers, But rather, O man, who are you to be arguing against Yahweh? Will the figure say to its fabricator, Why did you make me in this manner? Or does the potter not have authority over the clay to make from out of the same lump, meaning Isaac, one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Moreover, if Yahweh wishes to display wrath and to make known his power, with much patience, having bore vessels of wrath furnished for destruction, and so that he will make known the wealth of his honor upon vessels of mercy, which he previously prepared for honor, whom also he has called us, not only from among the Judeans, but also from out of the nations." And there Paul is stating that Yahweh was calling the vessels of mercy, the children of Jacob, out of both the Judeans and the nations as they were scattered into many nations by that time. But there were also vessels of wrath for, fitted for destruction, which are the children of Esau, which Yahweh possessed for that person, for that purpose. If many of the Judeans and other inhabitants of the Roman world of the time were not Edomites, then Paul's words would make no sense. But many of them certainly were Edomites. For that same reason, 60 years after the resurrection, in the revelation of Yahshua Christ, we see two separate warnings regarding them which say they are Judeans and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. He was talking about those Judeans in Israel who were claiming to be Judeans, but they weren't. These are those of his adversaries who were not supposed to hear Christ because they were not his sheep. They weren't his sheep in the first place, as he told them in John chapter 10, verse 26. They are Edomites, and they were never true Israelites. 
It is they from whom the Jews of today are descended, because, as he said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. The ancient children of Esau, the vessels of destruction, as Paul also called them, are those who had rejected Christ. Yet Esau is not being singled out without reason. To find out why Esau is being figured out, singled out, we have to go back to Genesis. Early in scripture, Genesis chapter 25, Esau's name was called Edom because he forfeited his birthright for a bowl of red porridge. Porridge, I guess, that was made from red beans or some reddish grain. His easy forfeiture of his birthright reveals the lack of regard which he had for it in the first place. Why would you give it up so easily if you actually cared about it? The spelling of Edom is a distinction which the translators chose to make in English, as it is the same Hebrew word as the word for Adam, which means red or ruddy. Later, in Genesis chapter 32, Jacob is also given another name, which is Israel. That is interpreted to mean he will rule with God, or perhaps he prevails with God. The subsequent history shows that Esau Edom followed the ways of the flesh, doing what he saw right in his own eyes, and therefore he is representative of the fleshly man, Adam. The fleshly aspects of the man, Adam. While Jacob Israel followed the ways of the Spirit, and sought to do what his parents had instructed him, for which reason he pleased God, and he inherited the blessings and the promises of Abraham. When Abraham so wanted... Bill, on, on the surface, if you just read it... Sorry. On I'm, the surface, if you just read it briefly, it seems like he's called Edom because he uh, traded it his birthright for red porridge. But if you have a deeper understanding, you realize it's actually named after Adam, right? As you just said, the fleshly nature and Jacob, as you just said, because he followed uh, his parents' wishes, right? Right, absolutely. And, and Esau's selling his birthright for that bowl of red porridge was itself a fleshly act. He didn't care about his birthright. He didn't care about his future or the future of his offspring. He only cared about filling his belly. So it's fitting that it was red porridge because it fits into that deeper underlying reason. When Abraham wanted a wife for Isaac, he sent a servant to his own people in Padanaram, who had then brought back Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah had this for an example, and Jacob and Esau must have been raised with cognizance of the example. But when Esau came of age, he took wives of the daughters of the Hittites, whereby we read in Genesis chapter 26, And Esau was forty years old when he took the wife Judith, 
the daughter of Biri the Hittite, and Bashanath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, which were a grief of mind unto Isaac and to Rebekah. The fleshly man did his own will instead of inquiring with his parents who he should marry or seeking counsel from his parents. He just went out and took wives of anyone and ended up with these Hittite women. And the Hittites, of course, are a portion of the accursed Canaanites. Yet Isaac did nothing on account of this. He took no action on account of it. And when he was aged, he planned to bless Esau, to pass the blessings of Abraham onto Esau, showing more concern for the food which Esau had put on the table than for the prospects of Esau's bastard wives and any children which he may have had with them. So in Genesis chapter 27, Rebekah persuades Jacob to pretend to be Esau. And Jacob reluctantly went along with the charade at his mother's insistence. He didn't want to do it. His mother insisted he do it. When he protested, his mother promised him that she would take any blame which ever resulted from the charade. So Jacob went along with it and obeyed his mother's wishes. So the result would be that Jacob received the blessing of Isaac rather than Esau. And when Isaac discovered the ruse... Rebekah defended herself, where we read in verse 46 of Genesis chapter 27. And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these which are daughters of the land, what good shall my life do me? And of course, it would be no good because all of her offspring would be bastards if Jacob had done that, following in the path of Esau. In that same place, we see that Esau was angered and wanted to kill Jacob for taking the blessing, which Isaac would not retract. In ancient times, men took their own words very seriously and lived by what they uttered. So we read Esau's response. And he said, is it not rightly, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. That word Jacob can be interpreted as meaning a supplanter. He took away my birthright, which Esau actually voluntarily sold him. So it's really Esau's fault and not Jacob's. Jacob was only taking advantage of Esau's fleshly worldliness. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And he said, speaking to his father Isaac, Hast thou not reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac answered and said unto Esau, Behold, I have made him thy lord, and all his brethren have I given to him for servants. 
and with corn and wine have I sustained him. And what shall I do now unto thee, my son? And Esau said unto his father, Hast thou but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And Isaac his father answered and said unto him, Behold, thy dwelling shall be the fatness of the earth, and of the dew of heaven from above. And by thy sword shalt thou live, and shalt serve thy brother. And it shall come to pass, when thou shalt have the dominion, that thou shalt break his yoke from off thy neck. So at some point in history, Jacob promised, or I'm sorry, Isaac promised, that Esau would have the dominion, and then break that yoke from off thy neck. And Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. Now, all this must have been within the providence of Yahweh, who had told Rebekah 40 years earlier when Jacob and Esau were in the womb. Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other. And the elder, meaning Esau, shall serve the younger, meaning Jacob. Bill, um, that, that prophecy, isn't there other versions where it said, uh, thy dwelling shall be away from the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above? Or, or is that one accurate? Because I've seen different variations. I was just wondering. I think that some of the variations are stretching the meanings of the words. Okay. I would have to examine Hebrew more closely, but I do remember ex having examined it in the past and, and basically agree with the King James Version. I would have to look at it again to verify that. But it's certain that the Edomites yeah, and they have would be a lived. Race anyways, so. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, say, go they on. would be a merchant race, so, so they would have wealth, but they would always be under the dominion of Jacob and, until, as you're going to say, they, they would break away. Well, well right. And, and it's evident that the Edomites have lived off the fatness of the earth through their, their mercantilism and their promotion of, mer of, of usury, which they've always promoted. It's the Edomites in the temple who... who whose tables Christ had overturned, the tables of the bankers in the temple and the merchants who were making profit from the people who, who had the convenience of not bringing their sacrifices to Jerusalem because they could just go to the bankers, borrow money, and, and purchase what they wanted right in the courts of the temple. And all of that is wrong. The temple was not supposed to be a place of usury and mercantilism. That's why Christ had caused such an uproar when, when on several occasions, he made himself a whip and went and beat the bankers out of the temple. The only way that Jacob and Esau could really become two manner of people is that Esau was a race-mixing fornicator. If both men had taken proper wives, they would be the, the, the same manner of people. 
So Paul attributed to the sin of Esau, Paul attributed the sin of Esau to that very thing in Hebrews chapter 12, where he wrote warning his fellow Hebrews from our own translation, watching closely that not any are lacking from the favor of Yahweh, lest any root of bitterness, now, now that's a reference to Genesis and Sodom and Gomorrah, lest any root of bitterness springing up would trouble you, and by it many would be defiled. Nor some fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one meal sold his own birthright. For you know that even afterwards, desiring to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he did not find a place for repentance, even though he sought after it with tears. Now, unlike English, the Greek particle translated as or in that passage is conjunctive. It's not disjunctive. So Esau was a fornicator and a profane person. The travails of Rebekah caused by Esau's Hittite wives proves that our interpretation is correct since there was nothing else for which Esau was ever criticized in those accounts in Genesis. But because Rebekah took the action she had and then defended them in the way that she did, we next read in Genesis, in chapter 28, after Rebekah had told Esau about her life being troubled for the daughters of Heth, Isaac called Jacob. And Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said unto him, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan, those Hittite women that Rebekah was concerned about. Arise, go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, thy mother's father, and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban, thy mother's brother. And God Almighty bless thee, and make thee fruitful, and multiply thee, that thou mayest be a multitude of people, and give thee the blessing of Abraham to thee, and to thy seed with thee, that thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger, which God gave unto Abraham. And Isaac sent away Jacob, and he went to Padanaram unto Laban, son of Bethuel the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. So Rebekah ultimately won her husband over to realize what is right through her own good conduct. That's been a subject of discussion in our forum recently. But what is important to note regarding Esau is that in Isaac's blessing for him, he said, And by the sword shalt thou live, and shalt serve thy brother, and it shall come to pass, when thou shalt have the dominion, that thou shalt break his yoke from off thy neck. The promises and blessings always extended to the descendants of the person receiving them. Jacob, the man who died after he and 75 of his progeny went down to Egypt, did not become a great nation and a company of nations, 
but his collective descendants did. And the same would be true in the promises made to Esau. So in turn, part of the blessing which Isaac had made to Jacob put Esau in subjection to Jacob, where it says in Genesis chapter 27, Let people serve thee, and nations bow down to thee. Be Lord over thy brethren, and let thy mother's sons bow down to thee. Cursed be everyone that curses thee, and blessed be he that blesses thee. Now be Lord over thy brethren. That would also count Ishmael and Midian and Havilah and the other sons of Keturah, which Abraham had later. But it would also count Esau. Brethren being a word which describes wider male kin, not just brothers from the same mother. So later in that same place, Isaac said to Esau, I have made him thy Lord, and all his brethren I have given to him for servants. Yet we have seen in the later blessing to Esau that there would come a day when Esau would be freed and gain the dominion. He would be freed from the yoke and of, of Jacob and gain the dominion over Jacob. In history, once the Israelites were established under King David in Palestine, he subjected the Edomites, and they remained subjects of Judah until the coming of the Babylonians. Then the Edomites, as subjects of the Babylonians, so they didn't have the dominion, helped to destroy the temple of Yahweh. So we read in 1 Esdras chapter 4, which is a more complete version of the book that we know as Ezra. The words of Zerubbabel to Darius, king of Persia, where it says, Thou hast also vowed to build up the temple, which the Edomites burned when Judea was made desolate by the Chaldees. This in turn concurs with the 137th Psalm, where it says in part, in verse 7, Remember, O Yahweh, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, evidently speaking of the entire city, raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. And that would include that temple. Yet the Edomites had no dominion and would not have any dominion for many, many centuries. They were subject to Babylonia, to Persia, and then to the Macedonian Greeks and the Romans, both of whom had descended from Jacob. As the Roman Empire, except, or, or what was left of it, right, accepted Christianity in the 5th and 6th centuries, the Edomites fled to Arabia, Africa, and Khazaria, where they developed Islam. They militarized the Arab and Khazar and Turkic hordes and deployed them for over a thousand years in their attacks on Christendom, the descendants of Jacob. As all that failed, 
many of the Edomites had come into Europe and placed themselves in the service of kings and princes as usurers, tax collectors, and merchants, while forever attempting to subvert their masters. Finally, they broke the yoke of Jacob and gained dominion after the French Revolution, the emancipation of the Jews, and the destruction of European monarchy which followed, all according to the methods laid out in the Protocols of Zion and the Communist Manifesto. So these Edomites employed the Turkic hordes. They employed the Khazars. They employed the and, and milita militarized the Arabs, but they were already race-mixing with them. When they converted the Khazars to Judaism, that permitted the Edomites to race-mix with the Khazars on a large scale. They had done the same thing in Arabia, where many of, of the tribes of supposed Arabs actually had Edomite Jewish backgrounds, and even Muhammad himself had Edomite Jewish blood coursing through his veins. His scribes that wrote the Quran, they weren't dumbass, camel-banging <laughs> camel Arabs, that they were Jews. Jews wrote the Quran. Jews were behind all of yeah, that. Yeah, you see, it's always the Jews behind everything, right? That, that the ones who really want to destroy, uh, as you said, they were the ones who destroyed the temple and wanted it completely gone. And, and the same thing with Christianity. They want it wiped off the face of the earth, right? It's Jacob being pursued by Esau, who wants to kill him ever since Jacob received the blessing as it's expressed in Genesis chapter 27. It has never ended. Of this very time today, we see a prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30 really can't be distinguished from Jeremiah chapter 31. That the, <clears throat> the chapter numbers are artificial. The context does not change. This is in a long prophecy which leads up to the promise and fulfillment of a New Testament for Israel and Judah. And it says, and I'll read from verse 3 of Jeremiah chapter 30. For lo, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, saith Yahweh. And I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. And these are the words that Yahweh spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus saith Yahweh, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear and not of peace. Ask ye now and see whether a man does travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins, as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness. Now, now, not for nothing, but this kind of reminds me of a modern trend where, where these, um, I, I, I don't, gay soy boy men are pretending to have periods. In, in this transsexual revolution, 
And so we actually might see the literal fulfillment of this in the circumstances of today. Then in verse 7, in verse 7, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, saith Yahweh of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off thy neck and will burst thy bonds and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. But they shall serve Yahweh their God and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. Therefore fear not, O my servant Jacob, saith Yahweh, neither be dismayed, O Israel. For lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and be in quiet, and none shall make him afraid. Now that's a promise we're still expecting. The prophecies yeah, that's are Christ's return, isn't it? Yes. The, the prophecies are fulfilled whether or not we are conscious of them. They're still fulfilled. We may not ever see how it happened if we're ignorant of the identity of these parties. But just because we don't see how it happened doesn't mean that it's not fulfilled. The children of Israel in captivity. Romans and Macedonian Greeks had controlled Palestine for, for a while, actually until the Muslim conquests. But that was temporary. The children of Israel in captivity attempted and failed to conquer Palestine during the Crusades. But they succeeded later on in the form of the French and then the British armies which conquered the Ottomans and came to possess the land. But that precipitated the time of Jacob's trouble, where the children of Israel are gravely threatened by the ascension of world Jewry, which has come to control the financial, social, and political spheres of the entire world, which has put a yoke upon Jacob. Because we are all basically slaves of this world financial system to this very day. This control is maintained not only through the power of financial control they have assumed since the founding of the Bank of England, but also through organizations such as the Freemasonic Lodges and the modern denominational churches. These organizations promote Zionism and world Jewish supremacy. This leads us back to the circumstances which we live under today and the opening verses of Malachi chapter 1. We're not going to quite get there yet, but that's where we are headed. I don't know if you have anything to say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think I mentioned it last week, but essentially Abraham's seed would inherit the world uh, through Jacob. And they would essentially rule. And, and then one day Esau would rule over Jacob. And if you just look in history, the, the Europeans essentially ruled the world and, and now Jews Jews do. So it's pretty simple, right? Who's who? You, you should be able to just 
throw that at um you know people are semi-awake and it would instantly click and go oh yeah that makes sense right right absolutely and and in that regard, I mean, we've already discussed this history several times, but I don't think I've read the actual passages from Strabo regarding this in Book 16 of his geography. Now, now Josephus explains how, exactly how, in the 13th book of his Antiquities, that the Edomites became converted to Judaism by John Hyrcanus, by Alexander Janius. On several occasions, Josephus details this history. But Josephus is a Judean, and he might be seen as being partial to the affairs which happened in Judea, even though we have every reason to believe that he was very honest in those regards. But Strabo of Cappadocia is a Greek. He's a pagan Greek, and he's doing his best to write, from a Greek viewpoint, a fairly objective description of the world of his time in his geography. And he defines the limits of the world of his time as being basically the Mediterranean basin and southern Europe, the northern coast of Africa, extending as far east as the Indus River Valley. And he did his best to describe all the peoples and places of that region, which he considered his world. So, in Book 16 of his geography, from Paragraph 2, he wrote, We set down as parts of Syria, beginning at Colicia and Mount Amanus, both Comagene and the Seleucus of Syria, as the later is called, and then Cola Syria, or Hollow Syria, which extends from the coast of Phoenicia through the Lebanon Mountains, almost to Babylonia in the east. And last, on the seaboard, Phoenicia, and in the interior, Judea. Some writers divide Syria as a whole into Colo-Syrians and Syrians and Phoenicians, and say that four other tribes are mixed up with these, namely Judeans, Edomians, which are the Edomites, Gazians, and Azotians, and that they are partly farmers, Gazians being from Gaza, and that they are partly farmers as the Syrians and Colossyrians, and partly merchants, as the Phoenicians. Now, the people of Gaza at this time are hard to identify precisely. They may have been remnants of Israel mixed with remnants of Philistines or Canaanites or other people. It's difficult to determine, so we'll just leave it as Gazaeans. So we see that Judeans and Edomians are mixed up together and a large portion of the population of Palestine at the time. And Strabo is trying to describe this from a very objective point of view. He has no interest in the internal politics of Judea, like Josephus had. But then again, he is substantiating and corroborating the testimony of Josephus. So a little further on in the same book, in paragraph 34, he said, in part, and being more particularly concerned with Judea, he said, as for Judea, 
its western extremities towards Cassius, are occupied by the Edomians and by the lake. The Edomians are Nabataeans, but owing to a sedition, they were banished from there, joined the Judeans, and shared in the same customs with them. There we see the history of Josephus fully corroborated. That the Edomites were joined to the Judeans and shared in the customs of Judaism. Now, from his own limited perspective, Strabo may be forgiven for thinking that the Edomians are Nabataeans. Now, the Nabataeans are Arabs, but they are also demonstrably the descendants of Nabayoth, the son of Ishmael. And the Edomites had been intermarrying with them for many, many centuries, right from the beginning of Esau's third wife, who was a daughter of Ishmael, a granddaughter, actually, or maybe even great-granddaughter. But Esau's third wife was an Ishmaelite. So, when Esau saw that his parents didn't like his Hittite wives, he went and got himself an Ishmaelite wife. He never asked his father who he should marry. He tried to correct it by getting an Ishmaelite wife, and that was a, a mistake nearly as large as his Hittite wives. Because Ishmael was already excluded from the covenants. So he couldn't do right even when he tried. That's a digression. Here are the writings of Strabo. But but Bill, it, it, Bill, it's interesting that Arabs and Jews, he couldn't really see a difference, right? That they didn't have a distinct culture. They're all just mixed up. Like, right. Like, say, Greeks and Romans. Right. He really couldn't tell them apart. So, so the Nabataeans had already moved into the lands formerly inhabited by the Edomites. But here in the writings of Strabo, we see a full corroboration of the history provided by Flavius Josephus, where it is attested by him that the Edomites and others were living amongst the Judeans in Judea, and that they had shared in the same customs with them. There are several other witnesses to these facts, which are those whom we have mentioned in the New Testament especially Paul of Tarsus in Romans chapter 9. But in the world of Malachi, several centuries before Strabo, the remnant in Jerusalem was very small, and it was surrounded by historically hostile tribes, the accursed peoples of the Old Testament, among which were Canaanites, who remained in the land since they were formerly slaves in ancient Israel, they would have been freed by the Assyrians and Babylonians. And the Edomites who had moved into the land, having wanted it for themselves. <clears throat> and that's explained in Ezekiel chapter 35. It's prophesied. As we have seen in Malachi chapter 2, the Levitical priests of his own time had begun to intermarry with people from these cursed tribes, and they were chastised before, by for, for that before by Nehemiah, and then by Ezra, as we also explained. While it is not evident to us how long it was before they started mixing again. 
where Malachi in chapter 2 of his prophecy had told them, and this ye have done again. The first mention of the word Pharisee by Josephus is made around the same time that the Judeans had gained their independence from the Greeks. In Antiquities Book 13, where he said, At this time, there were three sects among the Judeans who had different opinions concerning human actions. The one was called the sect of the Pharisees, another the sect of the Sadducees, and the other the sect of the Essenes. The word Pharisee in such a context means separatist, and it seems that they were originally opposed to mixing in with the other nations. But by the time of Christ, the word seems to have lost much of that significance. And the Pharisees themselves were making converts from people of other nations. Christ condemned them for that. Of course, there was a period of 300 years between Ezra and the books of the Maccabees, during which time Malachi had most likely written. And not even Josephus can fill in many of the missing details from that period. But by the time of John Hyrcanus, when Judeans were deluded by the idea of converting their enemies to Judaism, the discipline of Nehemiah, Ezra, and Malachi was fully lost. Then by the time of Josephus, <clears throat> in another description of the sects of the Judeans, which is found in Book 2 of his Wars of the Judeans, he says, for there are three philosophical sects among the Judeans, the followers of the first of which are the Pharisees, of the second, the Sadducees, and the third sect, which pretends to a severer discipline, are called Essenes. These last, meaning the Essenes, are Judeans by birth and seem to have a greater affection for one another than the other sects have. So where the Essenes are Judeans by birth, we see that there must have been many converts who were not Judeans among the other sects of his time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Josephus should know firsthand because he was both a Levite by tribe, and for three years before he became a Pharisee, he had joined himself to the sect of the Essenes and spent that time with them. So, so it's just like today, kind of Republican, Democrat, and, and white nationalist, where Republicans will accept niggers if, if they seem conservative, whilst white nationalism is mostly on blood. It's, meant to be on blood, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we have Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes. And the Essenes were not involved in the politics of the nation because they were outcasts. And they were the ones that were Judeans by birth. They were the Judean nationalists of their time. And at the same time, they were not involved in the politics of the nation. They weren't even welcome. So that's a good observation.
where Malachi wrote in reference to race-mixing fornication in chapter 2 of his prophecy, and told the priests that this ye have done again, speaking about Judah marrying the daughter of a strange god. He cannot be writing any earlier than the time of Ezra, and since he is not mentioned in Ezra, he probably wrote even later, as late as the 4th century BC. The circumstances in Jerusalem reflected in his writing seem to be from that time between Ezra and the coming of Alexander, by which time at least some of the population of Jerusalem evidently began to be Hellenized. Malachi had to be before that. And this is important to note in relation to verse 4 of Malachi chapter 1, which we are going to discuss shortly. Now we will proceed on to the prophecy of Malachi concerning Jacob and Esau. I don't know if you have anything that you want to say before we commence. Yeah, yeah. I just, just briefly wanted to go back. The, um, uh, you know, it's a topic that came up, uh, you know, in regards to feminism. But even back then, uh, sons were also, um, you know, basically told who they're going to marry by their, their fathers. That even they, they had enormous control over essentially their whole, whole line. And uh, what, what Esau did, that's exactly what Jews are trying to do today. Kind of separate that the children and and the parents make the children think that the parents are old-fashioned and, you know, that that they should uh, go out and the Jews encourage them to just go out and marry just like Esau, right? So the Jews are doing the exact same thing, trying to turn all Adamites into uh, Esau, essentially, right? Well, well right. And, and the popular culture. Pop culture is really a product of Jewry. It's a product of Jewish-controlled Hollywood. It's a product of Jewish-controlled television and radio. Jewish controlled record industries and and they've controlled these things ever since their inception. The Jewish bankers have made sure that Jews are in control of all these entertainment industries that have produced our modern pop culture. And today most young people grow up with this fanciful idea of romantic love. And romantic love is really just lust. That's all it is. You see a pretty girl, or a pretty girl sees a handsome young man and lusts for him, and all of a sudden, romance blossoms. But it, it's all superficial. And in the end, if your relationship began with nothing but romantic love, you and your wife are probably going to hate each other and it's all going to end in divorce as soon as that initial sexual appeal wanes and, and it is no longer existent in your relationship. And you're both going to move on to your next object of lustful desire. And that's the hookup culture and, and the marriage culture of today where, where most marriages end in divorce after just a few years that's the reasons for it where in the past marriages were arranged by parents people took marriages seriously you married somebody from your own tribe from from your own village 
and and your marriage was meant to be for the perpetuation of your people. So, so yeah, and, all, and even the fact that Esau um, married at forty, the age of forty, that shows it's a different world, right? I mean, no man now would wait until they're forty. Well, well, right, but then men waited until they were established and and mature and secure before they married. And and I believe Isaac was sixty years old when Jacob and Esau were born. Now, men lived a little longer in those days, but still, today, many men want to get married by the time they're 20, and they're not even yet established in life that they just got out of high school and, and they want to get married. Well, which is utterly ridiculous, and it keeps us in a state of slavery to the bankers. Because men don't wait until un, until they're established in in a trade or, or in a vocation to get married, that they forfeit trades and vocational training in order to get married. And and many young men in college, the the way the the, the sexual license is today in college, that they're married fifteen twenty times before they think of getting married. And they've already been married 15 or 20 times. They've already been through 15 or 20 women. So they don't even know what marriage is. It, it's a really sick society, today's society. And, and you're right, you're correct that Esau can be likened to that. He just went off and got himself somebody that looked attractive and, and made his own wives rather than care for what his parents thought and, and cared, caring for his birthright he he not caring for his birthright he didn't care about perpetuating his own family line his own race he was happy to take women of other races which we see common today so yes most men are just like esau today and and following pop culture is the culprit is the blame for that So Esau is killing Jacob by turning billions of the descendants of Jacob into Esau's, basically. <laughs> Beginning with Malachi chapter 1. The burden, chapter 1, verse 1. We're only going to discuss five verses. The burden of the word of Yahweh to Israel by Malachi. And now what follows is a dialogue, of which there are many in Scripture, but they are not always clearly expressed in the King James Version or in other translations. This dialogue is between Yahweh and the children of Israel, beginning with Yahweh, who says, I have loved you, saith Yahweh. And of course, he's speaking to Israel. Now the prophet describes the words of Yahweh himself, who expresses the sentiments of the children of Israel. So the words are attributed to them. And Yahweh says, Yet you say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? So we have two hypothetical questions. Wherein the children of Israel express greater concern for Esau 
than Yahweh has love for them. They seem not to understand why Yahweh would love them and not love Esau also. So Yahweh answers and says, Saith Yahweh, Yet I love Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Now, many commentators downplay the significance of this word for hate. Yet the word hate used here of Esau, whether it be in Malachi chapter 1 or in Romans chapter 9, in Hebrew or in Greek, is the same word used in the scriptures to describe Yahweh's hatred for his enemies, his hatred for the wicked, and the hatred which the enemies of God have for both Christ and his Father, for, in, for example, in John chapter 15, verse 24. Ostensibly, Esau's sin was that he was a profane man and a fornicator, as Paul described him in Hebrews chapter 12. So Esau was a race mixer, as Paul used the word fornication. And as we saw in Genesis chapters 26 through 28, the only thing which Esau did for which his parents were troubled was to marry outside of his race. Later, after Jacob acquired the blessing, Esau never properly remedied his parents' grief. And therefore, in that same place in Hebrews, Paul describes him as not finding repentance. Therefore, by his own parents was Esau disinherited from the promises of Yahweh God for no other reason than because he was a race mixer. For that, Paul called him a fornicator. For that same reason, his younger brother Jacob obtained those promises, as we see in Genesis chapter 28, where Isaac tells him, if you marry a woman of your own race, of the daughters of Laban, then you will inherit the blessings of Abraham. So for that same reason, Jacob obtained those promises, and the children of Israel have been blessed. Likewise, Yahshua Christ has warned in Revelation chapter 2, in the messages to the seven churches, that he would kill the children of those who commit fornication. Ostensibly, such a punishment is due to the fact that the children of fornicators are bastards. The children of Esau who is a fornicator in like manner, are also bastards. God hates bastards who shall not enter into the congregation of the children of Israel forever, according to Deuteronomy chapter 23. So now we're going to repeat this last passage here in Malachi, verses 2 and 3, so that we may comment on its prophetic aspects. I have loved you, speaking to Israel. Say, saith the Lord. Yet you say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Saith the Lord, or Yahweh, I'm reading from the King James Version, Yet I love Jacob, 
and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. This is a dialogue which represents a very spiritual analogy. Why would Yahweh speak to Israel and then receive an answer concerning Esau? Jacob himself had taken the inheritance from his brother at the beckoning of his own mother, Rebekah, who knew that Esau, his brother, did not deserve it. After it was done, and Jacob received the blessing of his father, intended for the firstborn son, Isaac had acknowledged that it was fitting, and he would not withdraw from his words. As we have already described in other ways, as many as 300 years after Malachi had written, at some point in the 2nd century before Christ, sometime around 130 B.C., a wicked policy of appeasement and conciliation towards the Edomites and other Canaanites must have crept in among the ruling priestly class at Jerusalem. And of course, the Maccabees themselves were the high priests. For that reason, with the death of Simon the high priest and the beginning of the time of John Hyrcanus as high priest in 129 B.C., we see an entirely different policy which dictated the conversion of Edomites and Canaanites to Judaism, where before this time they were being run off and burned out of their cities. In the immediate fulfillment of the prophecy, Malachi must have been warning against this, and we see in the history which followed that his warnings were ignored. We already illustrated in our discussion of Malachi chapter 2 that elements of his prophecy were very clearly fulfilled both by and in the time of the ministry of Christ. But as we shall see in the subsequent verses of this chapter, the expectations of a far-off fulfillment is also necessitated by the words of the prophet, a fulfillment which we are witnessing in history today. <clears throat> in this aspect, this prophecy is a clear indication that the people of Israel, at some point future from when this was written, would be more concerned with the children of Esau than they would be with themselves. And once the true identity and nature of the Jews is clearly understood, it is realized that such is precisely the state which denominational Christianity is in today. All of the denominational Christians of today have more care for a patch of desert sand in the Middle East and for the fate of the Antichrist Jews than they have for their own countries and their own nations. So Jews now control the policies of every nation. So this is a prophecy of what we must call Christian Zionism. The white Christian nations are the seed of Jacob, who had long ago returned to the Yahweh their God in Christ. The Jews are the descendants of Esau, them which say they are Judeans, but are not, but are the synagogue of Satan.
Yahweh God cares for Jacob Israel. And the people of Israel respond and say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? The people of Israel are depicted as if imagining that God should have a greater care, should have a greater concern for Esau than he has for Jacob. That is the exact attitude of today's Christians. The prophecy is fulfilled, whether or not they, they are aware of how it is fulfilled. The prophecy is going to be fulfilled, whether or not men are conscious of it. In this manner, this prophecy certainly is fulfilled, but denominational Christians are oblivious to it. It's so clear, isn't it, Bill? Absolutely. But as the prophet said, and as Paul had quoted him, God hated Esau, and he has no heritage. Today he has dominion, but he has no heritage. Today the gospel of Christ continues to cry out that God loves Jacob, but the true children of Israel, who are descended from whom are descended the white Christian nations of Europe, unwittingly show all of their concern for the Jews and for the artificial Israeli state in Palestine, which doesn't stand by the grace of God. It stands by the proceeds of the world's usury banking system. Ultimately, ultimately, the prophecy of Malachi opens with Israel concerning or expressing concern for Esau, whom Yahweh hates. Then the prophecy of Malachi closes in chapter 4, with the Israelites being warned to care for their own ancestors and for their own descendants, lest they be punished with a curse. So the end of this prophecy of Malachi is directly related to the beginning, although we shall discuss the closing chapters of Malachi at another time, in another proof that the ancient Israelites were white. So for now, the prophet Malachi continues with the word of Yahweh concerning the progeny of Esau. And Yahweh God continues by attributing certain sentiments to Esau, as he already had with Jacob. So it says in verse 4 of Malachi chapter 1, Whereas Edom saith, We are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, They shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom Yahweh has indignation forever. Now, just as a digression, Tel Aviv is the most friendly gay city in the world. There is no doubt, looking at the gay pride festivals that go on in Tel Aviv every year and get bigger and bigger, and all of the other abominations of the Jews in Palestine, that they truly have recreated Sodom and Gomorrah in the Middle East. There should be no doubt when you examine those things. 
yeah, they really don't respect a single law from Yahweh. And I'm convinced that um, the artificial state would be a hellhole if it wasn't for all this uh, constant aid from white nations that we just pour money into them. I think it wouldn't be anywhere near what it is today, right? Absolutely. It it would be a hellhole. It would be destroyed. I, I mean, if it weren't for Western money and Western military power, the the Jews would have butchered each other even. And and the Jews and Arabs would have butchered each other. And this would have all been over by the by the nineteen twenties. Zionism would have been a memory. Except for this Christian concern for Jews, which is truly the concern, the undue concern which Jacob has for Esau, expressed in Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. And they're oblivious to the truth of it. Denominational Christians are not taught anything that we can ascertain with all certainty in identity Christianity which is actually not a denomination. We shouldn't believe in denominations. We're just Christians. True Bible-believing Christians. Christians that believe the words of the prophets and the words of Christ and strive to examine history to see where the prophecies are fulfilled, which is what Christians should do, because that's how we know that God is true. And looking at today's world circumstances and comparing them to the first five verses here of Malachi, understanding the history of the mass conversions of Edomites to Judaism in the in the second and first centuries BC, it's perfectly clear that God is true and that this is truly what is happening in the world today is the fulfillment of these first five verses of Malachi. That's a digression. The Edomite Jews, through their policy of Zionism, and the support for Zionism found throughout the Christian nations, have not rebuilt Palestine in recent times at their own expense. They went to Palestine in the 1920s, after the First World War and the Balfour Declaration. They went to Palestine crying poverty and received all sorts of support for the West. So it's a perfect fulfillment of, whereas he dom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. So the Jews have rebuilt Palestine, and they've done it through the blood of the Christian nations who fought their wars, and through the billions upon billions of dollars in financial aid, those same nations have supplied to the Israeli state, especially since its official founding in 1948. And it is just like the Jews to cry poverty and beg for money and the labor of others under the pretense of religion. The artificial Israeli state in Palestine only survives with the funding of the Western Christian nations, which have been deceived into supporting it in the name of denominational Christianity. 
But what are the desolate places which would be rebuilt as Malachi was writing? The ancient cities of Israel and Judah were not desolate, as they had been taken and inhabited by the Edomites almost as soon as the Assyrian deportations of ancient Israel. So they cannot be the subject of this prophecy. Neither could Jerusalem nor Galilee or the lands surrounding the, the surrounding lands of northern Israel, Judah and Benjamin, neither could they be the subject of the prophecy, as the Israelites who returned from Babylonian captivity had been rebuilding and inhabiting those places right up to Malachi's own time. So he can't be talking about that. Later, when the Edomite usurpers came to rule Judea in the time of Herod, they never sought to recover the ancient land of Edom, which was then occupied by the Nabataeans. So that could not have been the subject of this prophecy. Mount Seir was never rebuilt by Herod, nor was Taman or Bozrah or the other cities of the Edomites, then under control of the Arab Nabataeans. In fact, never in history had the Edomites sought to return and build any desolate places in Palestine, at least not until the 20th century, because the people whom we call Jews are historically and genealogically the children of Esau who were converted to Judaism in the 2nd century B.C., Yahshua Christ had cursed Jerusalem, where he said to his adversaries, a mixed mob of Israelites and Edomites, as it is recorded in both Matthew 23 and Luke 13, that he said to them, Behold, and I'm reading from Matthew, I believe, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. So, also, the time of the end, as it is recorded in Mark chapter 13 and Matthew 24, is when ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. The modern Jews are the Edomites, who have now returned to Palestine in order to rebuild the desolate places. And what an abomination they have created. And while we will not pretend to see the future, the children of Esau, having returned to rebuild the desolate places and pretending for it to be the kingdom of God, have indeed made its desolation abominable. As it says here in Malachi, they shall build and he will throw down. These things never having been fulfilled since the time that Malachi had written this prophecy, their fulfillment must be before us today. Therefore, Malachi is indeed the prophet of what we may rather cynically call Christian Zionism. But in truth, the Jews are the synagogue of Satan. So the term is actually an oxymoron as ridiculous and as revolting as if Jacob set aside receiving the love of God for the benefit of Esau, 
which is exactly what white Christians are doing at the present time as they embrace the Antichrist Jews, which is exactly what Malachi describes here. I don't know if you have any response to that. Yeah, yeah, it's just just crazy that um, no Christians ever look at this, no denominations, that they just purposely ignore it, right? Obviously, they, they would lose their tax exemption status. And this is exactly what you'd want to show all um, white people who are Jew aware, but on the on the fence, not quite knowing who they are. Th these exact passages say, here, here you go, read this. Now you should understand who they really are, right? Right. It explains it, when you take Malachi, these first five verses in Malachi, and you put them together with the the history of Josephus, and you add to that the, the disputes and the content of the disputes which Christ had with his adversaries in John chapter 8, John chapter 10, and add to that Paul's explanation and and. and and, and comparison of Jacob and Esau in Romans chapter 9, speaking of not all those in Israel are of Israel. And then add to that John's statements in his, in his first epistle concerning Antichrist and those who came out from us but were not of us, meaning the Edomite Jews. And add to that the Revelation chapters 2 and 3, where... where they say they're Judeans and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. You have all these witnesses, an unbroken chain of witnesses that these damn Jews of today are devils. They are mixed race bastard Edomites. They are not Israelites. The proof is indisputable in the face of so many witnesses, but they ignore it. They completely ignore it. And that also is within the providence of Yahweh God. But we know it today for a reason. We have, have learned this message for a reason. We'll get into that reason later when we discuss the last two chapters of the prophecy of Malachi in another proof. But when you sit a Christian down and explain these things to him and he rejects it because of what his pastor tells him, He's rejecting Christ in the entire Bible in favor of his Judeo-Christian pastor. It's incredible that the arrogance of that, that the hubris to reject the word of God in so many witnesses, it's incredible. And the Jews are doing everything they can to quelch this message. We will end this with... One more passage from Malachi chapter 1, and, and it says in verse 5, And your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, Yahweh will be magnified from the border of Israel as soon as his enemies are destroyed. Now that the children of Esau are rebuilding Palestine, we await the fulfillment of this verse of Malachi, that we witness its complete destruction. However, other prophecies must first be fulfilled, and they are being fulfilled. But we can't possibly comment on that this evening. In the end, 
at the great day of the wrath of Yahweh, which is described in Revelation chapters 18 and 19 and elsewhere. In the books of the prophets, we may notice that the ultimate destruction of Esau is at the center of Yahweh's wrath. And that we will commence with when we return in our next presentation. That's the day we all look forward to, right? When Babylon falls and Yahweh says, right, it's time, boys. <laughs> you know, grab your axe. And it's time to go. But we have to wait patiently until that time and watch, keep watching many of our ignorant brethren until hopefully they will start to wake up, right? Well, well, absolutely. Our own hands are tied. Even with all this knowledge, our own hands are tied until all the words of God are fulfilled. And we're not quite there yet. So we have to be patient. We get that call, as it's described in Revelation chapter 18, to come out from Babylon and pay under her double what she has rewarded you. That's what we anticipate. Okay, thank you for being here. Yeah, brilliant, Bill. Thanks for having me. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European race. Thank you. Praise Yahweh. Good night.